Folks, my guest today is a band leader and multi-instrumentalist who has written many hit songs throughout his illustrious career. An avid basketball player and fan, my guest learned that the musical conversation is most important, reacting to what he hears in the moment and playing off that, similar to that of a great passing team who's distributing the rock. He has learned to get out of his own way and become a vessel for the music coming through him from the heavens. He and his noisemakers are coming to Tucson on January 22nd at the Fox Theater. Bruce Hornsby, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Okay, I didn't realize I was on the show. Okay, so I'll be on my best behavior here. Go ahead. You, 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 whatever behavior, we'll take it, man. Um, okay, all right. You know, I, I, I remember going back a few years, I interviewed Bobby McFerrin, and he was early in his career, he was, he thought he was doing some really cool improv and singing, and then he went to Shelley's Manhole, and he saw Miles's band, which at the time had Keith Jarrett and Chick Corea, uh, wow. Michael Henderson was on bass. Uh, Miles came out wearing all black with a black trumpet. And basically, they were playing off themes, maybe one note, the band would react to Miles, Miles would walk off the stage. And it blew his mind away because he was like, I know nothing about improvisation, letting go and just burning. And I, I wanted to know from you when you were able in your career to begin to let go and sort of lose the formula trip aspect of, of, of a set? Okay, well, that's a complex, uh, multi-tiered uh, question. Uh, just to speak to the uh, the group you're describing, that you had Chick Corea and Keith Jarrett, you know, two of the titans of the last 50 years, jazz piano. They were both playing rows. They were both playing electric pianos. Now, in, in, in Keith's case, that was... I believe anathema to him. He was he, as you probably know, if anyone knows anything about Keith Jarrett, after he uh, arrived at his great solo career for all these years, for fifty years plus, fifty sixty years plus, uh, he uh, he always played. He was a he was a he was a piano acoustic musician, acoustic piano player. Uh, so that was. Uh, I just I, I want to I want to just jump in for a second. Uh, what, what Bobby said was that night Keith was playing Vox organ. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, there you Continue go. on. That's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the same answer about that. You know, it's not <laughs> something Keith would have ever. Exactly. Chosen, I get it. Yeah. I, I think he would. I think he has said that he would. He would only do that for Miles Davis. And so, <laughs> uh, right. That was a very free approach. And uh, and so okay. So then, wind to where I felt. Pretty well, okay. So I, my, my my background is this. I. I was a, uh, a a school musician and a, a sort of a jazz jazz school nerd, and so I was learning that language. And of course, the more you learn the language, the more free you can become in the music. That's right. uh, and and so I did was trying to do as much homework as I could. I was a late starter. Uh, so then. When I when I graduated and then through my twenties, I felt like I was prepared to be to jump into any improvisatory musical situation and, and be able to hang at least solidly. And so, uh, because of that training, and mostly because that, that training included 
not only a great teacher who was very hard on me and could, couldn't wait to move me off the piano to show me how to do it. He was a, a teacher that could not only talk the talk, but he could really walk it. Uh, but it was also about my great friends, my great uh, fellow geeks there at the, at the, in the Foster Building at University of Miami uh, with whom I would play jam sessions most every day of the school year. And so that's just, just playing with lots of players, lots of players who have great aspirations and so are getting better and better every month because they're willing to put the time and they're deep in the woodshed. Uh, th- that that can't help but uh, but help but, but make you more comfortable in that fr- a freer situation. Well, okay, so I want to, uh, you know, the jam sessions. I mean, I, I've talked to a, a bunch of cats who were there a few years prior to you, like Mark Egan, Will Lee, and they yeah. they were out playing a lot of gigs. And I, when I mean like, you know, it's one yeah. thing to have a jam session at the university, but were you getting your feet wet on the bandstand playing instrumental improvisational music down there? Not so much. I was having to make a living. My, my dad was one of the greatest persons I've ever known. Yes. At the same time, was not really into me doing this. So he said, if you want to do this, <laughs> you need to do pay for it. He was kind of testing me to see if I was serious about it. And uh, he's a classic, traditional old guy. And living music seemed like completely absurd to him. And so uh, so I was making my living, alas, I was mostly playing for uh, Spanish dancers, singers. Nothing wrong with Latin, that. Yeah, that's fine. Latin, Latin music. Yeah, but we, it was basically top 40. So it was not, it was not, it was not sort of Iris Sullivan at the Unitarian Church. Playing <laughs> Joe Diorio, man. Unbelievable. Exactly. Unbelievable, okay. you know man. That, that's right. You know the territory. Yeah. So, uh, so right. Most of my gigs were playing Shake Your Booty at the uh, Hollywood, Florida, Miramar Racetrack Holiday Inn. Right? I would have been on the dance floor. But, I mean, that, you know, Bruce, I want to read you this, this quote from Molo and then get your response. <laughs> okay, because I met Molo down there, of course. Of course. No, I want to read this to you and then get your uh, response. He goes, we, meaning the range... We're at Laguna Seca. Bill Graham was there, Ry Cooter, The Dead, and Bruce Hornsby in the range. We went out there and played and did pretty well. The Dead were in the middle of doing the Touch of Grey video late at night, so it was a happening scene. I was digging it. The first time I saw them, The Dead was at American University in 73. They still sounded great. The audience was great. We played the first night, and then we came out the next day, mid-afternoon. Two- I know I don't know where this is going, I think. Yeah, I want, I want the audience. Two young men in the front row looked up at Bruce and said, Hey, Bruce, you're not going to play the same set, are you? Bruce had a bit of an epiphany. That I, I, I didn't realize I couldn't do this. I mean, of course you can do whatever you want. If right. you want to play the same set every night, you can do that. What happened that day was the second day. That, okay, we played the same set that year because we were a band on our first record, and we only had nine songs. <laughs> and we, right, right. So... so but we started fleshing out our set with when I paint my masterpiece, yeah, and 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 uh, done in, in the the, the uh, Levon Helm and the band version, uh, and and then we played. We would take our song Red Plains into I Know You Rider, and so uh, so those so we had eleven songs, <laughs> our nine. <laughs> and so, and I did. Two. So 
what that's what we did and we didn't think twice about it but some so so some deadheads somewhere in the first in, maybe within the first four or five songs start you start yelling same set <laughs> same set you know with, with venom and vitriol in their voices you know oh, and so i took note of that i know one thing i did do on the second day was at one point, I saw Phil Lesh over there watching our band. I knew Phil Lesh was a guy who liked uh, bitonality and atonality. So I instantly went into something I had done uh, in piano bars in Miami when no one was listening. I'd play, uh, okay, the, the, the movie The Sting was very popular in the mid-70s. And sure. The Sting was The Entertainer by Scott Joplin, one of his little rags, which became a big hit. That thing. I know and, it. Uh, yeah, sure. So, so, so I, I played it bitonally. I played it the right hand in the key of C and the left hand in the key of C sharp. You know, which is, of course, extremely diff- dissonant, but quite fun. And Phil just <laughs> reared his hair back, his head, head back, and just was gave out a hearty chore. Oh, I love You're making my day right now. I, dude, that's unbelievably classic. Yeah. That's just, it's just fun. It was just so I. I, I I spoke to him in that moment, <laughs> so uh, uh, so that 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 was one reaction. But again, what were we gonna do? We just we didn't know any other songs, and so we did end up, for the most part, playing the same set. Maybe I played every night. I would play some piano intros, which were always different. Okay, uh, uh, but uh, that's uh, right. That's, no, I I mean it, you know there's so, just so, so epiphanies. No, not really. Just okay. I I understand. Uh, a, a young, young dead fan, but uh, this is all we got. So this is what we'll have to run with. I, you know, I, I dig it. I, I mean, you just you came up as a, a younger musician, uh, getting your feet wet, and like these bands that I, you know, I've interviewed most of the cats from Return to Forever, Mahavishnu, uh, you know, all these fusion bands, and I just, you know, I, I wanted you to talk to younger cats specifically about. You know, the idea of just accepting the fact that... I remember Michael Shreve went to see Mahavishnu, and he was... Billy Cobb was, like, you know, on fire, and people were getting pasted up against the wall with the sort of facility and power, and Michael was like, yeah. I'm never going to be like that, and I'm okay with that. And I just... I would like you to talk to younger cats about just being comfortable making the music feel good as opposed to riffology or technique or chops. Like ultimately how more, maybe the better question is when did you learn to just sort of get out of your own way and let the music come through you? Well, okay. Uh, I was always uh, interested in lots of different types of music. And so on the one and uh, when I started writing songs, I pretty much wore two hats as a musician. There was, the, there was the piano player who was interested in developing virtuosity on the instrument and, and being very free and finding some space in the music for the expression of that, mm. uh, that idea. Uh, but then on the other hand, I got deeply interested in songwriting and that's really not about uh, improvisation. Uh, here, for instance, the, the, so many of the great, the, the records of the great Grateful Dead songs, they're Four minutes long. Absolutely. Long. There's no solos there. It's, it's all about the song and servicing the song. Not on, I think one of their models was the band. You know, they 
They were very they were deeply interested. I'm talking, they meeting the Grateful Dead. It's very interested in what Robbie Robertson and Levon and those guys were doing. And uh, and with Robert Hunter in tow as an amazing lyricist, you know, they could go, they could do that. They could do their own version of that. And, and so many of the songs from that era are the hymns of Grateful Dead fans' lives and, and on a deep level because they're deep songs. And so, mm. uh, so, so that's... Uh, so on the one hand, I'm I'm fine with just creating a song and and just delivering the song, but then on the other hand, I'm this restless soul on an instrumental level, <laughs> and, uh, a creative level, and so I I'm always looking to move the songs in different ways and maybe even reinvent them. You know, play the way it is in minor key. You know, for instance, uh, sometimes or a completely different tempo and 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 groove. Uh, in the moment recreations and so uh, uh, mandolin rain the way i play it so often now is a completely virtually unrecognizable version in in a minor key mostly most well known for the uh, uh played by on the first skaggs hornsby record my one of my two records with ricky skaggs absolutely uh, so 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 so, it, uh, so so they're they're, they're sort of two hats i'm wearing and so uh Again, it makes me totally fine to play a song very straight. But when I play the song I wrote with Robert Hunter, one of the several songs I wrote with, with Hunter, uh, the first of which is Cyclone, when I play that, oh, we'll stretch a little bit, but it's about the song. And uh, it very much like, say, Broke Down Palace. That's not necessarily a vehicle for, at all for stretching out. It's just a great freaking virtually folk song right? absolutely 100 yeah. percent. And, and so so it's not a, so so i'm no different than those guys in that sense uh some songs are made for stretching and exploration and and developing the new in the moment and other songs are just not made for that that's not what they're calling for so you 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 listen to what the song is telling you you know, I, I, this is a part that uh, of your career that doesn't get a lot of notice, but I'm curious, did you get a chance to meet or collaborate with Henry Mancini at all? <laughs> no. I, be, be, I know you, you just did some stuff. Can you talk about the studio work? I'm fascinated with this early 80s. You were out in L.A., I think, with... Uh, you were just doing a lot of studio, or you were doing a lot of arranging, composition, and I'm like... No, no, no. I wasn't doing any of that. I, I, did, I, I played on a few sessions, you know, a couple of Milk commercials and a bunch of publishing demos for Chrysalis because they'd wanted to sign me. I went with 20th Century Fox, but, uh, wow. but of course, I didn't remain friends with them, so it kind of paid my rent. Uh, but no, that's that's not really that accurate. You're giving me too much credit for being for, for being employed much then other than my job as a staff writer at Fox for two and a half years. Uh, but really more interesting to talk about. Yeah. Probably all, no, so go, go where you want, yeah. Although it's very current. For for 11 years or 12 years or so, from 2008 to 2020, I scored films uh, for Spike Lee and did about six of his films. Whoa. And uh, uh, including two, the, the two episodes, the two uh, seasons of uh his netflix series she's got a habit based on his first uh, film and so that was very intense and uh, and i composed something like 240 different pieces of music in that time and then ended up writing three records 
the first of which was absolute zero, which uh, made quite a splash in the critical community, in the indie community. And uh, and that the, the, uh, 60% of the three records I made in quick succession, absolute zero, non-secure connection, inflicted last year. Uh, the songs came from the, uh, cues that I had written that just sounded like they were screaming to be uh, in, uh, to be expanded into songs with words and so so that's a whole lot more <laughs> that's a, that's a whole lot deeper in area than what i was doing in 1981 to 84 <laughs> that's, that's not much to say about that no i i'm curious about when you say intense like uh you go back in the day again in the 70s they'd put a film on the screen and Shelley Mann and Emil Richards and Joe Porcaro, all those cats would sort of play to the theme based on what Lalo Schifrin, you know, what, what, what the mood set for, but they'd actually be playing to the actual film itself, silent film. I mean, how did you work with Spike to make sure that uh, ultimately uh, you were, meet, were you actually like, did you get a chance to see the film or certain scenes and play off that? How did you create the music for that? Yeah, well, it, it evolved. The first, uh, I guess, my audition. For, I've been working with Spike. I've been been working with Spike since nineteen ninety two wow. on different projects, usually songs for movies. Uh, Shaka Khan and I wrote a song for his great nineteen ninety five movie Clockers, and I wrote a song that uh, was uh, it was the end title for his 2001 or so movie Bamboozled. But then it kicked into higher gear when he called me in 2008. He was making a movie uh, about Kobe Bryant called Kobe Doing Work. It was an ESPN documentary, and mm. he asked me to score it. So I went to his house, uh, and uh, he he showed me the film with time, time code running across, just like what you're talking about, the Lalo Schifrin. And... Uh, it's probably time code wasn't even a thing in the 60s. <laughs> no, no, they were just not, wing. Not yeah, no, totally. The Schiffer and Ear, as I think about it. Anyway, uh, the first one I did, I, I, uh, the first one I scored was to the picture with the time code. And he, he was very meticulous and, and specific with me in, at his house. Okay, I want music here from this section to this part to this part. When Derek Fisher goes diving for a loose ball into the stands, <laughs> I want music there. I love okay. it. Yeah. So, uh, so, so then I gave him all this, and he was very happy with it. And then he he ended up though he ended up taking the, uh, the cue. Of, some of my more adventurous cues he did not use. That for instance, the Derek Fisher diving out of bounds uh, clip. I just went straight pointillism, atonal, Arnold Schoenberg, what we call blip blop. I love it. So that was a little too out for Spike. As he would always say, Bruce, remember, I like melody. Did you? I just want to be clear. Did you? Did you get a chance to ever meet his dad? I never met Billy. But Bill, I, I mean the, the the greatest bass player ever. Continue though. He didn't. He didn't. He was too little. Far, it was too out for him. Well, uh, I, I never met Bill. Yeah, you know what? I did meet, meet Bill. Real quick, real quickly. I was riding uh, just briefly. Yeah. Chuck and I were riding around Brooklyn, and uh, we passed by Bill Lee sitting on his stoop. I his, freaking his love it, dude. <laughs> and so just just came by and said hi, met him, and that was it. Uh, then years later, 
when I was scoring She's Gotta Have It uh, for Netflix, but uh, Bill Lee had scored the original. And so I, I channeled Bill Lee uh, in a lot of my, uh, in a lot of my score and, and, and replayed his theme from the original in my own fashion. And so that was my slight Bill Lee connection. Um, but no, the, the Derek Fisher thing was a little bit too avant-garde for Spike. Well, well, well right. And so, but so, so the, the, the reason I mentioned that is he was taking great liberty with my stuff and moving it around and he put something else I'd written in that Derek Fisher spot, for instance. So then he said to me, he asked me to do another film about a year later and he just he said, look, I'm going to send you the script because I'd like you to start doing this, but I don't have the film yet. So just just write just your feelings about the script in certain areas. I'll tell you, well, this one, I'd like music, this area, I'd like music. And so I just composed about and for every film, uh, every subsequent film, I I wrote about 40 pieces of music. He would use maybe three quarters of those, 25 to 30 of those for, for each film. And I would just send, so I, I just, just dump a whole lot of music on him and he would place them in the film in spots where he thought the music was appropriate. And so I was fine with that. And, uh, I was talking to Terrence Blanchard about this, who's his, been his main scorer for many years. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and I told him about this process and he said, Bruce, do you ever feel like, uh, the way he uses some of your music since he's picking it is inappropriate. I, sure, sure. Yes. Yes, I do. You know, you get a thousand people in a room with a, with a, uh, a particular scene, you've probably going to get a thousand different or say a hundred, you're probably going to get a hundred different, completely different takes on it musically. So I, under, it, it's okay. I, I said, so I'm, I'm okay with it. He said, well, he says, well, don't you think that would hurt you? Yeah, uh, if you're trying to get more of this work, if people are considering you for for a score, and they hear this this area that seems where the, it seems like the music is very inappropriate. Right. I said, I said, Terrence, you're uh, you're mistaking me for someone who wants to do this for a living. I, <laughs> as a film composer, I'm like Tom Hagen in The Godfather. <laughs> I have one client. One client, dude. It's a good client. I, I'm with you, man. And so, so no, so no, Terrence, I don't care. I'm fine with it. And he said, okay, I feel it. I feel it. So, so that's that. Well, I, uh, I have five, we're on a strict time limit here, Bruce. I, it, it, it we, we got to do another set sometime soon, but I just, I, I need you to talk about, uh, the first time you really connected musically with, with Mo, with John Mola. I mean, the guy was, was running hoops with unemployed actors in L.A. in the early 80s, but you said you met him in Miami. Floor is yours. Uh, yeah, uh, Molo and I played in the second band. It was a hierarchy, and I was always number two in the jazz piano student hierarchy. There was always a guy named Dave Roystein who was number one, and for good reason, Dave was and is a fantastic player and just musician, composer, et cetera, et cetera. So I was in the second band, and there were two drummers in this band, and uh, one of them was Molo. And Molo was a classic character at the time, because he was his own man. He was a guy who would hang out by the pool. <laughs> yes. At, 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 at university, the outdoor pool, you know, he'd come in 
with his bathing suit, <laughs> body still wet from the pool, and just kill it. You know, he was, Molo grew up as a buddy rich disciple in, in his younger days, high school and, and before. So he could really play the shit out of his hard swing. And uh, he just was a great groover. And, and we just connected personally, too. So I told him he left school after that year. I had one more year to go. Uh, so I did two years at Miami. He probably did two or three, but he, his, his last year was my first year. And so I said, so I kept in touch with him the next year when he was back in D.C. and said, hey, I, I'm going to come back. I'm uh, certainly going to come back to Virginia. It's a definite that I'll come back after I'm done at, at UM and I'm going to start a band. And I'd love for you to be the drummer if you'd like to be. So he, he said, yeah, I'm in. And we played together for the next 21 years. And uh, so that that was uh, he just was a great player and, and, and a great guy. He's a very funny guy. And so we connected on that level. He's kind of a jock. And so so was I. And uh, yeah, I and, still want I mean, we have to get to this. I mean, I really want to make sure that we get this the Allen Iverson story on the record at some point. I mean, oh, you know, it's been told enough. I, I, no, but I, oh, the other thing is this your band, that's, that. you know, your, your band that's coming in, the Noisemakers. Uh, can you just talk about, I mean, I don't know, Bruce, I just have a hard time these days with, um, we talked about it earlier, this quote unquote formula trip. How do you keep things as a leader? You know, how do you keep things so that you keep the cats on edge to a degree, but also allow them to be themselves. And so that you never play the same song the same way once as Phil Lesh said. Well, I, I feel like one of my jobs I'm up there to entertain the band, and and it's, there's nothing more soporific, more somnambulant, more sort of mind numbing than playing the song the same way all the time. So I'm just not that guy who's going to do that. So and, and that's what they like about the gig. Mm. There, there's a long line of cats who are who, who are hoping these guys will quit, and so then they can do the gig because it's a gig. It's it's the right gig for a uh, for a musician. Who's interested? Who's interested in more than just replication? Absolutely. Uh, and, and and so, so right. I'm trying to entertain my band. I'm entertaining myself. But I'm I'm restless in that way. So I'm going to go off on a tangent and or start a song a different way or start it with an intro. There's no set. They don't know what I'm going to play. And so, but I I'll give them cues. Sometimes I'll yell across the stage <laughs> the song title when it's a song that say the drummer Chad Wright will start. And so that, that so there is that too. It's not like everything is just emanating from me off the cuff. Uh, well, I I, I just would cues, you know I just uh, I just should I reach out? I would love to to come see the show. Should I should I reach out to Kevin for for a a ticket. I just want to. I want. I'm going to hold you accountable for spontaneous improvisation that night. Well, whatever you like, man. You can <laughs> do whatever you. You can do whatever you got to do. It's all fine. Uh, uh, yes, sure. You, you, you know him. That he's probably a fine guy to contact. Uh, right. So, so this is called a jazz festival. I think we're playing the Tucson Jazz Festival. So, because of that, when we play these sort of things, I tend to nod to that uh, songs from my catalog. Uh, that nod to that language, and so that that may be a, a focus. Well, I can I can't wait to see you, man. It's it's so great to connect with you, hear your voice, and uh, I will continue this conversation down the road, man. It's it's 
you know, very, Molo calls you a very sagacious cat, and you certainly are, man. It's much love. <laughs> Whatever, man. Thank you for the compliment. Okay, so uh, I'll see you at the gate. All right, man. Be cool. Thank you. Later, dude. Bye. Bye.